Hey everyone, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Laurie McKenna. So today we're chatting with celebrated writer-director John Lee Hancock. John is an award-winning writer-director whose extensive career includes writing and directing The Blind Side, directing Saving Mr. Banks, and most recently writing and directing Mr. Harrigan's Phone for Netflix. Across nearly three decades of his career, John has worked as a producer, writer, and director in multiple genres, including sports biopics, high-concept genre movies, compelling dramas, and even teen horror. Hi, John. Hi. So Hi. glad to have you me. here. Oh, I was, this is fun. I was lucky enough to be on a panel with John, and, you know, I knew from afar how smart and, you know, amazing he is, but it was so fun to meet you and i was just like oh my god he has to come on our show so i'm just thrilled that you're here i'm very yes. happy to be here that was a fun that was a that was a fun panel because i was moderating and got to ask lots of questions of you and lance black that i needed answers to so it was helpful <laughs> well now it's my turn john yeah okay i'm in the seat <laughs> okay so before we get started john has agreed i hope uh, to do uh, our first segment, which is Adventures in Screenwriting, or in other words, what was our week like as writers today? So uh, this week. So we'll let Lorian share first. Lorian, how was your week? My week was good for a change, right? Yay. Uh, I had a script due on Friday, and I had that thing where it just wasn't clicking, like it wasn't coming together in the way I wanted. And I could see that I wasn't going to be able to get it the way I wanted by Friday. So I had to do that thing where you reach out to the producers and say, hey, I would love some more time to work on this a couple more days and over the weekend. Can I deliver it on Monday? And they very graciously said yes. And I I didn't get into like the why. I just said, I'm going to need a couple more days. And, and then that was it. Um, and I had to go through that whole process of oh my God, why can't I do this? I'm a failure. You know, the whole conversation I have with myself about why I can't meet this deadline when I knew it was coming. Um, so I had to let go of that and not worry about it. And just writers do this all the time. And I had to be clear about what I needed and it worked out and I delivered it. I worked on it over the weekend and I delivered it yesterday morning, which was Monday. Um, but I, I realized that I have less of that spin in my head at the more I work right so it was like a couple minutes of oh what is this yeah fuck it fuck you <laughs> stupid voice moving on like just ask for the time so it was, that is that the was, benefit of experience just yeah. to have sat in that hot seat before where you realize yeah i didn't die last time i'm not gonna die this time yeah so i keep having the experience of not dropping dead when i ask for what i need i don't know maybe there's a lesson in that I don't know what the, the way, lesson is yet. <laughs> I, I saw, Lauren, I saw John nodding as you were saying, asking for more time. So even oh, I, the illustrious. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, yeah. No, I, I can't remember the last time I turned something in on time. So, you know. <laughs> John, awesome. How was, I feel in good company. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. John, how was your week? Uh, it was good. I mean, I had a, a, a long gestating um, negotiation going on for something that I set up for TV and trying to build tears into it when you're trying to predict kind of what you want to do the next year is hard um, because they they kind of want more and more and more of your time and I'm not sure because I go but what happens if I want to direct a movie you know I don't want to commit for two years so working that out took a while but uh, it closed uh, on oh congratulations it closed. Congrats. 
so I get to write, I get to write a pilot and, uh, and then awesome. we'll see, see what my involvement is beyond that. But, you know, a deal I'm closing, oh. a deal closing with the current business affairs in terms of how overstretched they are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that you actually closed one and, it, you know, you're moving forward. That's amazing. It was, so, it's kind of, it's kind of funny though, because I, I think you're, you're right with everybody I know who's in negotiations on deals now. It's different than it's ever been for sure. Um, and it's like the first thing that comes out is, you know, yeah, cry poor and all that. But, you know, this time it, they seem to kind of mean it. <laughs> so I don't know. And they go, did you see how many people we fired yesterday? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So right. uh, anyway, yeah. it's 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 crazy times right now. How long did it take the deal to close? I'm fascinated by this. Uh, I would say from the time I set up the show to now was probably four months. Oh, that seems fast. Well, it should, I mean, <laughs> it shouldn't be. That should be long, but that's fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Normally, I would say that it's kind of a a month at the most or something. Once everybody's in agreement that we want to do this, we want you to do it, then you know you've got certain basic parameters to to draw from. You know, other other deals and things like that. So. I don't know. This one just seemed to take forever. Mm, yeah. A lot of pieces to move around. Yeah. Meg, how was your week? Yes. Uh, my week, because I'm winding down on a project, which has its own kind of morning process, which I did a little mini episode on, so I won't get into that. But, um, you know, whenever you end something, it's always a bit odd and bumpy and uh, you go from intensity of 10,000 to zero. Um, but I'm also, so what I'm doing with my intensity, of course, is since while I was on this project for years, I have 750 emails in my inbox and I know there's important stuff down there. Like I know there's stuff that I said yes to and I didn't do and stuff I forgot. So I took three days and just whittled it down to 60. And so everybody, including people, all these poor TSL, our TSL yes. staff just got flooded with emails about, oh my God, six months ago, we said this. Did anybody ever do it? Was I supposed to do it? You know, it's just <laughs> it's just one of those, I'm making doctor's appointments. Um, I signed up for Asana, the to-do list, which I think I'm just going to use as a way station and then forget about it, but at least it's off my email. Um, but it's a bit of a, it's a, it's an interesting thing because now that my email, my email box is 60 and kind of crashing a little bit. Um you know, you I think... have a new project. I have a new project to do, and I there's tons of stuff I could be doing. I could be watching comp movies and research and character studies and basic structure on the pitch and set pieces. And I mean, I have a list of things. I mean, the deal's not done, so I really shouldn't do any of that. But I, because I'm an you know overachiever, I'm already making lists and thinking about what I can do. Um, but I just can't. I'm just tired. I don't know. I'm just uh, I'm I'm out of gas. Uh, I've been running a sprint for years and suddenly I cross the finish line and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know, John, as a director, it must be that way. When you finish a movie, do you have any kind of process yeah. of transition? Well, yeah. I mean, normally when I finish shooting before we go into editing, I'll take a couple of weeks, one to let the editor catch up with our, our last week of footage and things like that before we, we look at a, you know, the whole mess and you want to slit your slit your wrist but um uh you know so yeah a couple of weeks but then i'm 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 excited i like that's part of the process too so you go from it's kind of a i mean it's every step of the way it's an interpretation 
And that's why I was fortunate enough, kind of my first movie I directed, uh, Mike Rich wrote, I didn't write it. And so I was able to just wear the hat as a director and say, it's my job to interpret what came before. And then the next thing you're, you're shooting. And then, you know, I like my editor to, um, to, to, to jump in and to do his thing with the materials. Now, obviously there's a certain way you shoot things that become obvious to the editor, but I like it. Uh, you know, I like for, for him to do his thing. And then I come in and he's interpreting along the way too. So every step of the way is an interpretation as long as well as the writer who may be interpreting either from an original idea or a magazine article or a book or whatever. So I, I enjoy that, that whole process of, you know, if you're writing, sitting and sitting alone, and then about the time you get tired of yourself, um, hopefully, you know, you're headed into prep and you go into an office where they're at the start, they're just a handful of people. And then it grows and grows and grows. The next thing you know, you know, there are 20 massive trucks uh, at a location and you're driving up and saying, oh my God, I'm terrified. Yep. Sounds yeah, super much. relaxing, this career yeah. we've chosen. I mean, it's really great. How do you know if a project, so when we start the process, right? Mm -hmm. So you're considering a project. Um, how do you know it's right for you? You know, is there different criteria if you're directing versus you're going to write direct, if it's TV, if it's film, if it's IP, like what, what, how do you kind of look at it? I try not to have any hard and fast rules because <clears throat> anytime I've laid out what my career, what I thought my career should be, I changed my mind like six months later. So it's kind of what I, I, you don't want to repeat yourself. Um, necessarily at the same time you you want to do things that you're drawn to and that may be a subset in and of itself but for instance i don't really look forward or plan on directing any more sports movies i did two um and really enjoyed them and i'm very proud of the movies but there's no international on them and they're hard to make and and, and all that stuff so I, that's kind of crossed off but other than that i mean like for instance <clears throat> My agent sent me uh, years ago, Saving Mr. Banks by Kelly Marcel that I directed. And, <clears throat> but it land, it sat on my desk um, for a week and Sean Bailey over at Disney had, was, you know, they were meeting with different directors and had asked, you know, he said, I'd love for you to come in. And so my agent said, look, it's a really good script. Read 10 pages. If it doesn't speak to you, it doesn't speak to you. And I said, I don't even like Mary Poppins. So what am I, I'm the wrong person for this. But I picked it up and just loved the script and felt like, but actually I am the right person for this, at least in my mind, you know, and um, and I had a, a clear vision about it and, you know, thankfully got the got the gig. But that's something I never would have expected landed on my desk. So how did you know you were the right person for that particular one? Like what, if, especially since you're not a Mary Poppins person, what was it that it, I mean, first of all, I hope all our writers here 10 pages. Right. So, uh, you know, and does it grab you? So uh, just back to our mantra of when do I fucking love this main character? But uh, what for you was that? Was I, that? I had never, I mean, I had done, I, I look at it kind of thematically and what is the, the the touchstone of something you're writing or directing? What's Where's that place that you can reach to that is a gut response to something where you can make mistakes, but none of them will be fatal. Where you go, I this is what I know. And I know this with all my heart. So this is the decision I'm making now, you know, or how to direct this scene or how to do this, that, or the other. Um, I would say with that, I had done, I had done movies that dealt with fathers and sons. I had done a movie in the blind side that the core relationship was a mother and a son. 
and I hadn't, and I had a, and I had a daughter, you know, was probably 10 at the time, um, 12, maybe anyway. Um, she, uh, I'd never done a father daughter and, and I was just so taken with the relationship as you're watching this person grow, um, before your eyes and hoping not to imprint anything on them. That's awful. And then to examine this through the eyes of, you know, of, um, of, of Colin Farrell, who, you know, was very much in the, in the, in the movie for the very same reason, just his relationship with children, mm -hmm. and how, how you affect them sometimes negatively and, and how you don't want to do that. So I don't, and I was just really drawn to that central relationship and P.L. Travers love and love for her father, who is a very flawed man and protecting him almost to her death. And that, mm -hmm. that, so that central relationship was something I really wanted to explore. I found the movie really emotional and beautiful. And I loved uh, Emma Thompson's performance. Yeah. I thought it was brilliant. So very well directed, very well performed. Thank you. There was a moment in the film, though, um, when the mother walks out of the house in her nightgown like kind of in a trance and walks into the river. And I have never related to anything more than mm -hmm. that moment. Like as a mother, I have so felt that compulsion. like I'm not suicidal. I'm not actually going to do that. But sometimes the overwhelm of all the responsibilities. And I found that so interesting that that was what I connected to. Um, like how, when you're looking at something like that, that's not about the core relationship necessarily. Like mm -hmm. it's, how do you, I, I just thought it was so beautiful. It's not really a question. Sorry. It's a comment. Uh, thank you for that moment because I felt very seen. Oh, uh, well, in that I, moment. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I love it too. And, and Ruth Wilson and I talked about it a lot and, you know, because it puts a big burden on her to how do you play that? Are you truly in a trance? How aware of you of the choice you're making, how much you love your children, how damaged the whole family is largely because of the father's you know, alcoholism and the daughter's allegiance to him over mom and how she feels left out of this relationship. Like it's just between you guys. How did mm -hmm. I get left out of this? And um, <clears throat> we talked about it a, a whole lot. Um, it wasn't until it was funny because I went down to Australia, even though we shot it here in California, I went to Australia to see the actual places where these things took place, where she was a little girl um, you know, and her dad, and then they move, they get moved to Alara, which is out in the middle of nowhere. And it's just kind of looks like it could be a, um, a farm town or a ranching town in Kansas or something. It's like that. But I went to the house where they lived and where P.L. Travers lived. And I walked from the bedroom to the river. And it was about the same distance as our location. I mean, it's not right there. It's probably 300 yards, you know? So you have to be committed to it to make that walk. At some point, you're thinking about it the whole way. Um, and, and when I got there, I realized the kind of the effort it took, and it, it just helped me. It just helped me kind of visualize it and talk to Ruth about it. Um, but yeah, it was that was mm -hmm. it, it was a tough it was a tough scene to shoot too. I mean, um, it's freezing cold. We had, you know, the the jacuzzi thing where they got out of the water and jump right in and <laughs> freezing to death. So you know they're trying to keep their teeth from chattering. But no, I I, I like I like that scene too. 
Well, and I, and I hope our writers can hear that John's talking about being in the present, in, in the place and how much the place mm-hmm. is helping him understand that character. And, you know, that might just be research if you can't actually go to the place. Um, but so much of all of this imbues our characters with the specificity that what the actors are asking him. I mean, I'm so interested, John, in working with actors um, when when you're the writer or not, like what for you do you need to bring for an actor? If you're a writer, if our, our all of our writers listening, mm-hmm. um, you're you know I'd love to talk about both what a director needs on that page and what an actor needs on that page as for you as a director working with them. Yeah, I think that I mean I guess writing first. Um, you know when I'm I just think about when I'm reading something what do I respond to because sometimes I direct things I've written sometimes I direct things that I haven't written and so what do I respond to and I want to be I want to be at times stop dead in my tracks where I just stop reading because something hits me you know or something's really really good or whatever um but I also want to be surprised Oh, didn't see that coming. Not in a not in a bad way, but in a good way. Like, oh, now I'm intrigued. And so I, I think for actors, it's probably, I'm guessing, the same. So preparing something that then is a work in progress. I mean, I know like an, an Aaron Sorkin would say every word is sacrosanct and it has to be said this, this way or whatever. And that works for him in a great way. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work for me. I, I would I would say that probably... 20% of the dialogue I want said exactly like it is because of the musical rhythms of it or something or how the word at the end is placed and those kind of things. A lot of it though, I'm just looking for naturalism when I direct. So, you know, if a word, you can write something that looks beautiful on the page that coming out of an actor's mouth doesn't work and you have to be open to, well, let's throw that away and start over. Here, here's what the gist of what you're trying to say. And another thing is, is being open to I mean, I learned through the through the years that, in my experience, at least, really good actors want fewer words to say. Um, they say, "Can I just earn my check and act it? I can give you this." And I go, "Yes, of course, I love it." So fewer words are usually better. Um, but as a director, I, I try to, you know, I try to again. An actor is interpreting that script, and I'm interpreting it as a director. And so, the more conversations we have, I really don't do hard rehearsals, but I do a lot of meetings where we talk about absolutely everything and say the lines and say, this doesn't work, or are we missing an opportunity here? Or, you know, good ideas come from wherever. Um, So being in unison with them and kind of a partnership with the actors where it's the two of you, and it's almost like you know something that nobody else knows, the two of you do. And you've talked about it a lot. And you can... You know, and the other thing is, is that it's not about at that point, it's not about I mean, I think Francis Coppola said, you know, um, we have all these rehearsals for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's your time. Once we're on the set, it's my time because the talk, the clock is ticking. And we all understand that. But it, it's I, I love I love that it's so different than directing theater, for instance, which I did some early on in that you don't have time to go. Let's take a walk. Let's have some coffee and talk about this <clears throat> because I think we're missing an opportunity here, which is a lovely thing to be able to do. It's kind of like you have to distill it down to what is that kernel of truth? What is the one word that you can go whisper in an actor's ear and they and their brain explodes? 
in a good way. Like they want to do it now. Now I get it. You've just given me, you know, everything opened up for me. And it's not easy to find that one word or those two words or those three words. But sometimes, you know, you get lucky and, and then they'll just go, go, roll, 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 roll. Yes. Because you've had those conversations and you can see the impediment that they are having. So. Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out. And, you know, the question's going around, is it worth it? Is it worth it to buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot, and I want to see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly. But the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0, where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script. So without losing something, I can see what's working, what I'm missing, or what needs to be rewritten, or, you know, if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really, really helpful. And what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo! Yes. I am laying out a new project, and I want to card it. And I can now do that inside of Final Draft, and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is Final Draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool. So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraft.com slash products to get the new version with a discount code of ScreenFD for 25% off. You should check it out. That's ScreenFD. S-C-R-E-E-N-F-D. So, Do you, uh, uh, that's really helpful. I love that because as a writer, you kind of want that connection to your characters as well. Yeah. Like this, the, here's the word for the whole script. Here's the word yeah. for the character so yeah. that you hold that. And hopefully that comes through. Yeah. Do you do a writer's pass as a director on your scripts? It, it depends on the script. Um, and and it, 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 it's not like, oh, uh, the, the, the script's not not great, then I'm going to do a rewrite. Um, the script's great, I don't do a rewrite. It's usually kind of the way I see it. Sometimes there's a, a really, really good script that I'm drawn to, and I'm not drawn to that many things, but I'm drawn to, but I have kind of a slightly different way in, you know? And and I found that I'm not really good at development because I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm too nice or whatever, but there's a part of me that just wants to do it myself. Right. However, I've had experiences like, for instance, with Kelly Marcel, where I thought, you know, like Tom Hanks said, we treated it like the Gutenberg Bible, the script. Um, and so, you know, those conversations with her and I said, no, I want you with me all the time. And she was what? And I said, <laughs> no, every decision that I make in prep is a story decision. I mean, so I would I set her office right next to mine and she goes, what are we doing today? And I go, well, first, we're going to go to props. And we're going to pick watches, you know, and, and she would go, what? It's such a go, mirror of the film, right? Yeah, the yeah, writer. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. So, and she would go down and I go, this is, a, and now we're going to pick paint colors for the bedroom. I said, that's a story point because you're saying, what would PL Travers have chosen? What color? That says something about her. Everything's a character decision. And see, so once she got on board with that, she, she loved it. Also, Mike Rich with the rookie. And the thing is, and there were things that I that we talked about, like I'm having trouble 
with this scene, it seems as though it should be broken into two different components or, and then let them go. And, or sometimes with Mike Rich, I said, I could try to describe it, but it'd be easier for me if I wrote a bad version of it. And he goes, that would be awesome. So I wrote, you know, just a fast version of kind of the direction I thought the scene should head. And then he made it great. So that, awesome. that relieved me a little bit not to have to explain, just go, can I just take 10 minutes and write the scene and it'll be bad, but you'll understand what I'm talking about. And In a way, I mean, that what you were doing with her and taking her all those places is just a dream of most writers. I mean, but I have mm -hmm. to say it's very rare. It's very rare. Every but, writer uh, is salivating to work with I you know, right but now. it's Everyone possible. <laughs> it's possible. Well, it's no, it, it is. But I do think that it's, you know, it, it depends on the writer and some of them, you know, um, some writers might they like they go, I've got something else to write. I, I mean, I, I'm busy, busy, busy. Yeah, I'll, I'd love to help however I can. But, you know, I trust you and go and I'll visit. I'll bring my family and visit, you know, that kind of thing. But some other ones, I mean, Kelly Marcel is prepping in London right now to direct her first movie. And oh, so awesome. I told her the first day, I go, someday you're going to want to direct. I just know it about you. And so this can be, you know, this is what Clint Eastwood did for me. So I'm going to try to do it for you. Now, you may hate everything I do, and you can learn from that as well. You know, I'm going to do it differently when, I, when I'm when i in in charge. No, oh, I but, love that. I wish it was like a established thing that we could all go do if you chose to, to, be, to shadow like that. So, John, yeah. we're going to ask you some practical questions, too. So okay. what is your daily writing practice look like? What's a, what's a day in the life of John Lee Hancock? It's do you have a practice? It's, you know what, it's, it's kind of... I would say kind of, kind of no, kind of no. I mean, it used to be, you know, before, you know, when I was, when I first moved to Los Angeles and stuff like that, it was like, I was having to write, I mean, I was having to work to pay the bill. So I'd write at night. Um, and so I would just have long writing jags at night. And it was just whenever it, it, it hit me, I would like to just lock myself up and write eight hours or those kind of things. Um, and then you get married and you have a family and kids and everything. And then you go, I kind of want to be around to take them to school and pick them up from school and coach little league and those kind of things. So it changed into kind of a little more of a writing during the day, you know, during those hours and then sometimes a little at night, but usually, you know, spending time with your family at night and things like that. Um, now that my kids are out of college and off, I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of... <laughs> kind of like when the mood strikes and you feel like you're getting good work done. And sometimes, I mean, you guys know this, sometimes you just have to start and know that it's, you know, parts of it are just going to be bad. And then you'll yep. hit something, you go, oh, but this is good. I like this little idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it was so, you know, with the pandemic, it was so weird because I, I took, I, you know, I, I, I took a book um, the Jason Blum called and, and asked about a short story of Stephen King's. And this was right when the pandemic was, everything was shut down. And I thought, I think this is going to go on for a while. So it might be good to take something to occupy my time. If, you know, I'm just going to be sitting, sitting at home so I can have something to, you know, be excited about. And so I took it and then, and then lo and behold, it got made. I mean, I, I thought that it was good, but I thought it's a little tiny short story that, you know, that I liked a lot, but it, you know, it wasn't a horror movie or anything like that. It was kind of paranormal a little bit, but 
I don't know. I, I just didn't know if it was going to get made because I thought Jason Blum, you know, and Blumhouse and horror movies and those kind of things. But so that was fun to work on, just have to have that during the pandemic. And then, like I said, lo and behold, they go, next thing you know, we're, you know, we're scouting in Connecticut. And I'm going, this seems like it might happen. So, <laughs> you know, you never know. It's never real until it's real. And then right? there are times, yeah. There And then, then there are times that you just, you, you fight, fight, fight to get it made. And like the highwayman only took 16 years <laughs> from the time I signed on as director, you know, something like that. Um, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit about your craft journey? Like your first script that you wrote, Oh like boy! looking back, like, because yeah. our audience is a lot of emerging writers. And I think, uh, you know, all of us, all writers, I think for the most part have this voice in our head. Oh, you're not good at that. You're good at this. Right. So mm -hmm. like what, what, I mean, if you're willing to talk about it, like what yeah. have your struggles been with craft? Um, I, um, you know, the constant, constant struggles. I mean, we're always, I think at least for me, you're always looking for hard and fast rules that you go, this is what I know and I'll know it forever. And right. now that I figured out how screenplays work and how movies work and how stories work, I'm going to follow it. And then it's out the window. The That's day. a fantasy, right? And then yeah. every new project yeah. is like, wait, what is words? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's true. I mean, for me, I, I, after, after college, I went to law school and then practiced law for three years in Houston, Texas. And so I started, started really getting into movies when I was in college and plays. And this was long before there were a bunch of books on how to write screenplays. You know, there was like one book or something maybe, but, um, uh, but so I just started trying. So you ask about the first script. It's awful. I think, um, people would ask, they go, well, how many scripts before Perfect World did you write? I go, I think probably four or five. And they go, well, now that you're successful, you could get them made. And I go, and dash my career? Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Now I can see the progress. You know, you just, you can't help but get better at it. And so I could see the progress, which was fun to look at. But, um, but, but no, I mean, and it you also, change, right? You do become yeah. a different person. Um, I mean, but you did go back and work on something that was, um, and make something, the little yes. things, wasn't yes. that, uh, little, like, little why did things. that rise to the threshold of this is, this is worth it? Yeah, it was right after I wrote A Perfect World, I was looking for something else to write, and I uh, had a blind picture deal with Warner Brothers and Steven Spielberg to kind of come up with something to write, and I came up with that story as an original, and it just always, it just always stuck with me. And it had been one that, I mean, how many different directors through the years wanted to do it? It was crazy. Steven said it was, you know, it was too dark for him. Warren Beatty, I spent, you know, two years having lunches with Warren Beatty talking about- Oh, it. poor you. Yeah. <laughs> but it, which was fascinating because he would just tell stories from growing up in Virginia with Shirley. And I'm just like, let's just keep going. This this <laughs> is the this is the movie I want to see, actually. That, absolutely. Those he but had absolutely. great stories. Yeah. He has you could that. just do a short film trying to get a movie made and meeting all the different people that you sushi have to... with Warren. We ate at the same sushi place every time <laughs> up uh, Mulholland somewhere. But um, amazing. Yeah. But in uh, a Danny DeVito, when he was directing, was going to direct it. And then uh, Dean Pariseau was going to direct it. And it just kept going on. And so every three or four years, there would be a director that would come across it and want to do it. And it never quite got got made. And I think it was because it hasn't, 
an ambiguous ending and everybody it, I, Warner Brothers had paid for the script. So, it, you know, I think at that point they go, we have to know who the bad guy is, you know, because I'm, it's, I'm, you know, it's ambivalent and I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. And I said, well, I mean, as long as you feel something, I, I said, that was the, the reason I wrote it was just because it was ambiguous in, in that way. And it says it's a Rorschach for the, for the individual viewer. I think, you know, how do you feel about vigilanteism? How do you feel about somebody needs to die? How do you feel about innocent until proven guilty? Those kind of things. Um, so eventually, and Mark Johnson was the producer on it, um, and he was always pushing me and to say, well, you should direct it. You should direct it. And I had kids that were little, and I said, it's just too dark a place for me to go to right now. So after they're, after the kids were off in college, then Mark said, you don't, you're out of excuses now. So and <laughs> Warner, Warner Brothers said, wait a minute, we like this script now, and we own it. I go, yeah, you own it outright. And you paid me very little money to write it. Uh, so, you know, it's it like, found its time. It came, it, it's yeah. time arrived. And I want you to know that when I first came to LA many moons ago, I, if one of, if not the first script I read that I understood voice, I understood suddenly um, craft, but bigger than craft. I understood a storyteller that I had in my hand sitting as a little assistant at this agency. This was an, an incredible storyteller and it was a perfect world. Like I oh, just you. went bonkers over that script and gave it to, you know, told every, all the other assistants, you have to read this, you have to read this. Um, I just, if, you know, if, I don't know if people can read it. Um, I'm sure now everything's somewhere, but yeah. it really just stood out. And, um, you know, do you ever counsel current emerging writers or that you meet in terms of how to do that, how to stand out, how to, now you started in plays, so I'm sure that influenced you greatly, but yeah, what do you think I, about that? I, I had, the thing is, a Perfect World came together in an odd way. I had, I always had, I think young writers, when you talk to them and they've written a couple of screenplays or whatever, they have a long list of all the screenplays they're going to write. You know, they have ideas and, you know, I used to have like 20. I'd like to do Now I've got none. I'm looking at a blank page, you know, but <laughs> um, but it was funny because I had three different ones that I had ideas for. One was. Um, one was. An, uh, an escape, an escape, you know, from a, a prison and a little boy taken hostage and the odd relationship between the, you know, the 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 bad guy, the the convict and the the child, um, who was Jehovah's Witness. Then another one was about the week before the Kennedy assassination in Dallas, and how Texas, who has always been and still is very boastful, and their their buttons pop on their chest, you know, all the time because we were a country, we were the only state that was a country, you know, first and all that kind of stuff. But it was humbled and brought to its knees by the Kennedy assassination because people would just go. It, how, how did this happen here? Why did it have to happen here? Um, and so I was taken with a, you know, with kind of a Texas Ranger law person there who starts out his career thinking he knows everything. And by the end, he's going to retire. And it's the week before the Kennedy assassination. And he comes to the point where, I mean, I already knew the last line of it, which is, I don't know nothing, not one damn thing that he's been reduced to that. So I knew the last line. That was all I knew. Then the so, third... so Sam Shepard. Yeah. Right. Well, it, I mean, it's yeah. the ethos of 
Shepherd, yeah. Yeah, it's no, great. I'm a big, big Shepherd fan. So, um, <laughs> um, but also it was a little Flannery O'Connor in there. A good man is hard to find. Um, and then the other thing was we grew up in Longview, Texas, in East Texas. And, but my parents were public school teachers. And uh, so, you know, we didn't have a ton of money or anything. So when Halloween came around, it was like, I'm going to paint a mustache on you. It wasn't like store-bought costumes. So the idea of a store-bought costume was a big deal. So one year we got store-bought costumes and my little brother, Joe, wanted Casper the Friendly Ghost. And so he was probably five, six, something like that. And he wore it. It was long sleeve and long pants. And he wore it all the way into the spring every day. He wouldn't wear anything. And so my mom was you know, having to try to wash it to keep it from falling apart. Eventually, she cut off the legs and cut off the sleeves because it was so hot. And he, we had a field next to our house. And he would be out there playing in the field in his Casper the Friendly Ghost outfit. So that was the third story, just an image of a little boy in a Casper the Friendly Ghost outfit in a field. So what do you do with those three things? You know, nothing until you start to work on one of them. I started working on the, the prison escape. And then I thought, who's chasing him? It's it's the guy, you know, it's the Texas Ranger. Oh. And then who's the little boy? He's he's this little boy in a cat. I mean, mm. I know. And so it all kind of came together. And I, I would say that I just, I, you know, I kept writing down notebook after notebook after notebook of things, how they could congeal. And then, so when I wrote it, actually sat down to write it, I had it all figured out and I wrote it in like two weeks, you know, because wow. it all just it was I had spent so much time prepping it in a weird way before yeah. I started writing. What's really cool about that story is that it's the characters that you really connected yeah. with and then figuring out what their right story is together. Right. You think, oh, this yeah. is their plot. Oh, this is their problem. When really you were dancing around one idea, the fourth idea. Thematically, I realized that what I was writing was the question of what is it to be a man? How does a man define himself in terms of being good, bad, helpful, not helpful, masculine, not masculine? What is it to be a man? And I think that's, you know, inside the relationship between the convict played by Kevin Costner and the boy. And it's steeped in the character of uh, Red Garnett, who is played by Clint Eastwood. So yeah, that was that that thing. What is it to be a man? And I didn't mean that in any kind of a macho way. I meant what responsibilities does a guy from Texas feel as he gets older and realizes that toward the end of his days, I don't know nothing, not one damn thing. You know, John, I am a writer director as well. And I'd love to ask you a question. There's this general understanding and consensus among our business that you're just a very nice guy. You mentioned it earlier. You joked that you're sometimes even feel like you're too nice for development. And I feel like I sort of have that energy too, where I don't have that like aggressive, speaking of what is it to be a man, like that aggressive macho sort of alpha aggro approach to our business. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes our business either tells the story or creates this narrative that to be a successful director, you sort of have to have that sort of like toxic over the top aggro thing. And I, you seem to really defy that. And I don't know if you agree with me or if anything I'm saying is, I would just kind of love to hear you speak on that. Sure. I think it, I think, I think every director brings his or her energy uh, to a set and to a story. And um, if they're smart about it, they know how to create an energy on a set that is conducive to their best work. So, I mean, you know, Michael Bay loves chaos. 
And he loves to be the eye of the storm. Like he can be the kind of straight ahead guy by creating all this chaos around him. And, you know, and, and, and there's excitement in that energy for him and it works well for him. For me, it kind of, I mean, in the, on the one hand, Clint Eastwood was a mentor and Clint says very little and, um, you know, is quiet and nice on the set and, and all those kind of things. And I just liked his energy and focus because I like, I like it to be quiet too. I mean, and I asked him about it and he said, look, they don't run in hospitals and they're saving lives. We're not saving lives. We're making a movie. So I don't need any running. I don't need any shouting. You know, I don't like any of that. I don't like walkie talkies going off. So, and there was something about that that was, that you felt like there was impetus. You were always moving forward and moving quickly, but it felt like it was a family doing it together and everybody was on the same page. So that kind of fit with my personality. I never could be Clint Eastwood, you know, because he's Clint Eastwood. I mean, but, uh, but I, but I, but I did learn a lot. Uh, learn a lot from him. So I, I, I think that, yes, I mean, you've got to, you've got to find what, you've got to find that place that allows you to do your best work and concentrate. And, you know, and you'll know it when you're on a set and it's going the wrong direction and you'll just go, let's, let's shut that down, guys. That's not, you know, we're not doing that. Just, we're over here. We're over here now. Um, and I think once, once a, once a crew especially understands that you know what you want and you're also respectful of them, you get 10 times the work. You know, they're, they're going, I'll go to the mat for this guy. He knows what he wants. I mean, I say it at the, their first production meeting every time. It's like, we all spend way too much time away from our families and our loved ones and our homes and our dogs and, and everything to not have this be a great experience, something you're proud of. And I'm not talking about just the paycheck. I'm talking about when the movie comes out that you go, I worked on that, whether it's me as a director or whether it's you as the dolly grip. You know, I want you to be proud of this and go, this was time that I was away from my family, but it was the right decision for me to make. And so that's kind of my mantra on, on all of it. I love that so much. When I was, when I was a, a producer, my dad worked for General Motors. He was making cars as an executive and he's looking at the credits going up at the end and he goes like what's that about i mean why do i have to see every <laughs> single person do you expect me to sit here and watch every single person that made this movie like we don't do that for a car it's not like in the in the uh in the glove box there's a list of every person who touched this car and i was like why not there should be and then they would have pride in their work and he was like yeah. Shit, you're right. We should definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to so keep you, that on the show. I just thought that was like I so. I just love it so much. That's fun. What I love about your story, Meg, though, is that instead of like, oh yeah, I'm going to examine why we do that in movies, you're like, no, why not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we should do that everywhere. Everybody should get credit for the work they do. Yeah. Sounds. It sounds lovely to be able to work with you, but I'm sure that there are moments of stress and pain. And mm -hmm. um, what do you do to manage that? Uh, either on set in front of people or like when you get home and you're like, right, you've had a rough yeah. day. Yeah, I, I would say that one thing is you have to be a little bit of an actor yourself, not necessarily a good actor because I'm not, but that you have to tell, this is going to sound horrible, but you have to tell little lies all day long because you're the person that's responsible for 
making your day. And, you know, only you are looking at this, really. I mean, you're, you're, you know, your line producer and things like that are as well. And your first AD, of course. But you're looking at this and going, this is the only day we can have this location. We can't come back tomorrow. You know, and like with the blind side that we couldn't come back tomorrow because they're destroying it tomorrow. The bulldozers are waiting for us to finish. So there's that kind of thing. And then so there's there's a component of time that's in your head. And sometimes it's like Big Ben ringing. And yet you have to pretend that we've got all the time in the world because an actor feels that energy. It's like, oh my God, we're we're rushing through this. We're rushing through this. This guy is not caring as much about the story and performance as I am. He just wants to make his day. And you have to, you know, make sure that you have that inside you, but you go, we got all day long. Let's do this. Let's get it right. You know, I think, and I think there was one day early on in the blind side with, uh, with Sandra Bullock and um, she was still trying to find, you know, it's a, it's a big character that she was playing in Leanne Tui. And so, you know, she had a wig on and the, the accent and everything else. And it just, you know, it just, it takes a little while for an actor to kind of find that groove. You don't jump right into it. And she was doing fantastically, but she didn't feel she was. And she goes, I just don't have it yet. I don't have it yet. And it was one particular day where it was blazing hot. We were outside. So she's got a wig on and all this stuff and a, and a, and a, and a kind of an important scene. And it just so happens that when we had, scouted the location three different times there were no airplanes going over but when they come into atlanta airport they come from different directions depending on weather so that day it was nothing but 747s going over 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 and she had like a long speech nightmare she nightmare this is the stuff you it. dream about happening. yeah yeah and so the producers were behind me going, you know, we it's it's really good, John. She's really good. We've got to move. And I, I scout because I could see that she wasn't in a place where she thought it was very good. And I told them, I said, I can't afford to lose her this early in the in the movie. And so I went out and I said, we will stay here all day long. And she because she never griped once. It would have been easy for her to say, you guys came out here and these planes going over. How am I supposed to work like this? This is ridiculous. And there are a lot of actors that would have said that and they'd be they'd be right. But she didn't. She was blaming herself. And so I said, I have to be there for her. And at the end of the day, she's you know, she said and she got to a place and I said, I, I, I'm I said, I'm I'm more than good right now. You tell me when you're good. And she goes, I'll do one more. I said, OK, do one more. And then she got to the point and said, you know, she said, she said, thank you. She goes, I feel really, really supported. And I think. I turned a corner with the character today. So great. Okay. You're directing with empathy and compassion and you're seeing her as not just as her character, but not just as an actor, but as a human being. And I yeah. really, I can see all of that in your films. I can see it in the films. I can see it in the performance. I can, you, it's so, it's so you, it's so, so inspiring. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Well, yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I'm how lucky am I? I mean, I look at the list of all the different wonderful actors I've been able to work with. And I mean, you learn something from each and every one of them. And every one of them is a really good person, you know. Um, so I don't know. I've been I've been really blessed. No doubt about it that, you know, that I have actors that 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 aren't assholes and that I can have conversations with and they're looking for something deeper and more truthful. Yeah. And to our writers out there, see what's happening to your script. 
on the day you're not there and you want to have that director who's on board with you and that you guys were on board with and that as it's changing and morphing and the actors and it's 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 being held in the hands of that director uh, to protect it so it's such an important choice as a writer for that when you have it and you don't always have it of course mostly you don't but I don't want to miss a chance to ask you about adaptations mm-hmm. um, because you've adapted such different material um, you know uh, can you talk a little bit about how you approach an adaptation both literally from just even practical craft things I think our audience mm-hmm. is always really really interested in um, very practical, like, okay, I have this short story. Let's just use that. Mm-hmm. What, uh, how do I flesh this out into three acts and, and have the depth and, and, uh, like what, what are some things that are, how are you approach any material, whatever you feel inspired to talk about? Yeah. I think when you're adapting, whether it's a, a short story, a novel, a, you know, a magazine article, or you know, a document, whatever you're doing, it, it's, that's already coming from a different medium. So you're trying to form fit it into the correct medium. And sometimes, you know, you can have a, a, a great novel. You go, I don't think it's a movie, or at least I haven't figured out. Somebody can figure it out. I can't figure out how it's a movie or a short story or whatever. I re- recently read a Rolling, a Rolling Stone article that was really interesting, but I said, it's only a first act. You're going to have mm. to make up. And it was a true story. You, know, you have to make up all this stuff. And I'm not, so I'm just not sure it's a movie. Anyway, somebody else will figure it out. But the first step is, does it does it feel like a complete story? And then the second thing is, this is different with the Stephen King because it was only 82 pages, this novella. So I ended up, you know, you have to create, I had to create stuff that wasn't in the short story, but do so hopefully in keeping with the characters and thematically what Stephen was trying to say. And I, you know, I also had the benefit of, you know, working, being able to converse with Stephen about this. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. And he'd go, Oh, John, I think that's a great idea. And I was like, Oh, okay, fine. Said, yeah, change that line. I don't know why I wrote that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but that was one where I added a lot. Um, sometimes you've got something where the toughest decision, like if you've got a, a long novel, the tough, toughest decision is which 70% do I leave out? Mm, yeah you know and so you have to say what's the story i want to tell what fits in there what supports that you know so it's i mean it's different every time i mean and again it's it's just like do i want to the other thing is is as a director it ends up being a year and a half of your life i mean for an actor sometimes they'll come in and they'll work for a month on something you know um and and they they do something that i can't do but you know, when you're, what's a year and a half of your life? It's not, um, it's not something you go, yeah, this could be interesting. It's got to be something where you go, is this going to make me want to wake up at 4.30 in the morning? And I don't like to get up at 4.30. So <laughs> if I'm, if I'm excited about getting up and getting to work, because today I get to shoot this scene. And also mm-hmm. the thing I love about directing is for the most part, I mean, I've never had to reshoot any scenes, but for the most part, when you've shot that scene, it's there forever and ever and ever, you know, maybe you won't use it in the movie, but it's there and it's done. And there's a completion satisfaction that comes with that, almost like mowing a yard where you go, it's yeah. done. It's done. I can turn <laughs> the, turn off the engine and go home and, um, you know, and think about tomorrow's work. In the can. As in the can. Say. Yeah. In the can. I love so that. Great. 
John, thank you so much. We always end our show with three questions. So Uh-oh. we'd love to ask you the three questions. Super sure. easy. Don't worry. Okay. So okay. we start with what brings you the most joy when it comes to your work? Um, I would say from a writing standpoint, it's, you know, you're constantly rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. There's this little moment of joy when you hit on a certain cadence or you, you know, a scene changes in a way where you're moved or you find yourself tear up or choked up or laughing out loud or whatever. There's great satisfaction in finding that little nugget as a director. It's, I think watching actors say the words and it just sometimes it's just so much better. You know, you go, wow, <laughs> somebody's going to give me credit for writing that. And they <laughs> have, but for the fact that that was Emma Thompson saying it, you know, or not Emma, it was Kelly, but you know, Clint Eastwood or Kevin Costner or whatever. Um, so that, that gives me a, a great amount of joy. And then every time that happens, you think maybe I can do this. Awesome. Just by the way. <laughs> So here is the second question. What okay. pisses you off about your work? Oh, let's see. Oh, um, from the directing standpoint, the it's it's a couple of things are frustrating. One is you come into prep, you have a certain number of days. I remember Clint Eastwood told me one time. Um, you know, there's always going to be, how can we save money this, this way or that way or whatever, hold on to your days. Cause the first thing they'll say is we need to cut the budget on this. And the fastest way to cut the budget is just take out days. Cause, okay, let's say your, your days on Mr. Harrigan's phone are, I mean, he's going to throw a number out there. They're $250,000 days, two $220,000 days. So you can go boom, boom, boom. Let's take out five days and we've got a million out, you know? Um, and that's not always good for the movie because you have to look at it and you go, I can't do this justice in this amount of time. And so you fight that fight all the time and you end up, yes, we can cut this and we can cut that. But then you always have to you know, draw a line in the sand and go, I, I, we can't cut this. Why make the movie if we're going to cut this scene, this location, whatever. And then there's always the, the arguments about this location's too far away. But it's, I said, well, find me something that's just as good and close and I'll shoot there. But I can't find it. So there was one in Connecticut that was a, an old quarry that was a brownstone quarry where all the brownstones in New York were built from this quarry. And it was magnificent to look at. But it was, you know, it was a good four hours. So we were going to have to go. We were going to have to stay in a hotel. We were going to have to shoot all day and then come back late at night and all that stuff. And so from a line producer standpoint, I understand like this is a nightmare. I go, yeah, but it's, it's worth it. So anyway, that um, also there's the, oh my God, this happens every single time. And part, partly, it's tr- partly it's valid, but from a studio standpoint, you get a cut of the movie. And the first thing they said, the first thing they always say is, uh, it starts too slowly. Can we just rev this up? You know, this, things don't start happening until this. Just get rid of as much of the first act as you can. And you go... Guys, the reason it works is because we're establishing characters and themes and all these things. And then when things start to happen, you already find yourself involved. But they never quite get that. So you end up kind of meeting, meeting them halfway sometimes or whatever. But 
John, you're a writer-director, so I'll be interested to see how you answer this question. But we always ask our guests, if you could be remembered for one scene that you've written, what would it be? Um, so you can answer as a writer or director, or if you want, mm -hmm. you could consider kind of both of those tracks. And I'd be curious to hear your answer. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there are several scenes that I'm very, very proud of. Um, I'm the founder. The ending of that movie... And coming to the idea that, I mean, it's like, what is a name that the questions for that movie is kind of, what is a name? What is your family name? What does that mean? Does your, does your name imply good things, bad things, respectful things? And I just wanted to get Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc to a point where he could lie to everyone else, but he couldn't lie to himself. And he don't, you can't say that because he's practicing a speech in a mirror. So it takes the genius of Michael Keaton to see that in his face, like I'm a liar. This wasn't the first McDonald's. Mine wasn't the first McDonald's. And then he kind of rallies from it and leaves and disappears. And that's the end of the movie. So that's a scene I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of just because I think it works and makes us understand Ray Kroc in a way that it's not, he didn't get away with it because he, there are mirrors all around his house. Such a good that. lesson because it's focused on one question. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I think what you're saying for our writers who are listening is like, it's a perfect encapsulation of the entire theme of the movie in a moment. Yeah. And when we can like strike gold like that in our work, we know we're hitting, we know we're getting that bullseye. That's so hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think also, um, yeah, I mean, there. I would say there's you know, at least a couple of scenes in every every movie that I go, wow, that, that I'm very proud of that. That turned out great. So anyway, but that's one that comes to mind. Wow, amazing! Telling the truth, love it, John. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was super fun. Just I love hearing your stories and your insights. Uh, just super helpful and ins really inspiring. I feel super inspired. Oh Same. well, me thank too. You. Me too. We all share the uh, the uh, the same. Uh, you know, frets and worries. So uh, <laughs> it's 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 nice to actually see faces and uh, hear from you guys as well. So thank you for having me. Thank you, John, so thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much to John for joining us on the show today. And you can watch Mr. Harrigan's phone on Netflix right now. And I'm sure all of John's movies are out there uh, streaming and I highly recommend um, so, 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 so many of them. Just uh, amazing. And also, I we recommend to you our Facebook page where we've got a really great group of um, emerging and pro writers talking to each other, asking questions. You're going to get a lot of advice that you're asking for. Um, so it's a really great place to go get support. And lastly, I'm going to say, which I know this is shocking because it's me because I don't usually ask this, but we really would like some reviews. So if you like the show, uh, please go to uh, review it on Apple, right, Jeff? I know on the That's Facebook right. page, some people had some problems because they couldn't find where to give the review. So jo so Jeff, come on, help us. I, I will put up that tutorial again. Um, but yes, it's Apple Podcasts. We have been getting some more reviews lately, which is good, but we're at 685 and my goal is to have 800 by the end of July. So we have 115 more in the next two months. I really think we can do it. Again, just to generously call out our listeners, our, we're growing but our rate of reviews is not growing proportional to our Facebook group and our listeners. So I know some of you out there, you've been thinking about it. You hear this, you hear this call to action. It's a really, really generous way to help the show. And most importantly, to let other folks know about the show because Apple boosts our show when we get those reviews. So on Apple Podcasts, 
We yeah, deeply appreciate listen, you all. If you are not giving a review because you don't want it read out loud and you're afraid and you have like imposter syndrome that you can't even, you're afraid to even write a review, just write. Don't don't read this online. Mm-hmm. We, we won't. And you, you can also just, you can leave just us don't. five stars without writing a review too. That's an option. There you go, so. people. Look, come on, you're writers. Come on, people. We're asking <laughs> because we do want to, you know, help other people find us. So um, please go and give us a review. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Meg. Thank you, Jeff, our producer, Savannah, our co-producer, Jason, our intern. Last day This is last day. Round of applause. Thank you so much, Jason, for everything you've done. We'll be lost without you. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing.